we come to uh, our sermon series on gospel origins again today. Uh, it's been kind of a hit and miss uh, six weeks or so. Over the last six weeks, we've been in this series, three of them. Half the time, we've taken a break for our missions uh, forum or for Easter, both very appropriate things uh, to do. But um, I'm going to need to probably bring you up to speed a little bit uh, this morning as we jump back into this. Just by way of reminder, the first 11 chapters of Genesis uh, describe God's ideal world that he created uh, at the very beginning, as well as humanity's rebellion against God and, and the judgment that God brings on sin throughout these very cycles uh, uh, that happen through these 11 chapters. Uh, but God always provides grace alongside his judgment because God's purpose is ultimately not to condemn the world but to redeem it. And we pick up today with the story of Noah after the floodwaters receded. And um, Noah's story began back in Genesis chapter 6. It really covers three chapters, six, seven, eight, nine. That's four chapters. <laughs> should do my math before I come up here. Uh, so four chapters, starting in Genesis 6. And, and there at the beginning of that chapter, we read about this downward spiral of corruption from sin. And it had gotten to be so great that God says in Genesis 6, 5, it tells us that the Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. That is a harsh assessment of, of human nature, the human condition. It is both extensive and intensive. Um, all of our thoughts are evil all the time. And so God determines, as the story unfolds, to judge the earth through a flood. And chapters 7 and 8 describe the flood. And then Noah, his family, and the animals get off the boat onto dry land beginning in chapter 9. We looked at two weeks ago. And Pastor Peter explained last time we were in this series, two weeks ago, that chapter 9 begins with Noah blessing, I'm sorry, God blessing Noah and his sons. And he gives what Peter called Eden take two. It's kind of a reboot, a restart. God repeats the cultural mandate, this, this idea that humanity is to multiply and fill the earth and exercise dominion. And, and then God makes a covenant with Noah and all the living creatures that were with him on the boat. And Peter covered this last time, but since it's been a couple of weeks, um, we're going to look at that covenant again this morning. I'll remind you briefly what he said, and then we'll build on that and add some additional thoughts to it. And so if you're able, uh, please stand. Uh, we'll be reading from Genesis 9, starting verse 8 through verse 17. Genesis 9, 8 through 17. This is God's word. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, I now establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you and with every living creature that was with you, the birds, the livestock, and all the wild animals, all those who came out of the ark with you, every living creature on earth. I will establish my covenant with you. Never again will all life be destroyed by the waters of a flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant I'm making between me and you and every living creature with you, a covenant for all generations to come. I have set my rainbow in the clouds, and it will be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. 
Whenever I bring clouds over the earth and the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will remember my covenant between me and you and all living creatures of every kind. Never again will the waters become a flood to destroy all life. Whenever the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and all living creatures and every, of every kind on the earth. So God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant I have established between me and all life on the earth. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that your word uh, informs us. It teaches us. It gives us perspective that we wouldn't otherwise have. And Lord, thank you that your word here speaks of your patience with us, your grace and your mercy, even after judgment, Lord, just another example that judgment doesn't have the last word. And so Lord, speak to us today what you would have us hear from your word. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> well, Peter, Pastor Peter explained last time that the word covenant, one of the most important words of the Bible, shows up for the first time in chapter 6 at the beginning of Noah's story. Chapter 6, verse 18, when God promised that he was going to save Noah and his uh, family through the ark. And here in chapter 9, he takes up that idea of the covenant again, and he establishes the covenant. And Peter mentioned a covenant is a bond, right? It's a promise that two parties are bind, binds them together. They're, they're brought together, uh, and it's a serious commitment. They take promises to the death that if they fail to keep the covenant, you know, would their life be forfeit? And God makes this covenant with Noah, with his descendants, and in fact, with every living creature that was on the ark. And the promise that God makes through this covenant is simply that he will never again destroy the earth by a flood. Never again will he destroy the earth by a flood. And, and this is actually remarkable because humanity was still as sinful after the flood as we were before. Sin still deserves judgment, but as Pastor Peter explained, the covenant is a promise of forbearance by God. That is, God will hold back his judgment. He'll delay his judgment. He won't just mete it out when it's merited, when, when we deserve it. And the rainbow is a symbol of that forbearance. The word in the Hebrew isn't actually rainbow, it's just simply bow. It's the word that is used to describe a bow and arrow, a weapon of warfare, and, and, it, and it doesn't point down to the earth. Um, the arc of it, part of its symbolism is that it points to the sky. Uh, the rainbow symbolized that God had hung up his weapon. And, and uh, that, that's a summary, a summary of what Peter covered two weeks ago. And today I want to think a little bit more about the flood and the covenant before we move on to the story of what happens afterwards. As I said, the flood is, is an expression of judgment on the wickedness of humanity, but the flood doesn't have the last word. God's covenant promise expresses his refusal to give up, to, 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 to refuse to give up on his plan for all of creation and for humanity. God preserves in order to redeem. And so in order to appreciate this, let's consider first what the flood demonstrates. The flood demonstrates what sin deserves. The flood is a graphic expression of what Paul in the New Testament many years later will explain when he says the wages of sin is death. 
The wages of sin is death. A wage is what you earn, right? It's what you get for what you've done. And if what we've done is work for a paycheck, we like those wages. That's not what what God has in mind here when he says this. What sin deserves, what we earn by sin, is God's judgment. And so even though God promises to never destroy the world again by a flood, that does not mean the flood was a mistake, God is not saying here, oops, I probably shouldn't have done that. That might have been a bit too extreme, a little little overstated. No, the rainbow is an expression of his forbearance, right? He's committing to no longer mete out judgment in the same way he, he is committed to delay judgment. But the scripture is clear that he'll eventually bring ultimate judgment, He'll pour out his judgment, his wrath for sin, for all the sins of his people on Jesus, on the cross. We celebrate that on Good Friday. Peter explained that two weeks ago in context of this passage. God will also pour out his judgment for those who reject Christ at the final judgment at the end of history. And so if that's the case, if if judgment's not just completely gone, but he actually is just holding back, he's delaying, he's showing patience, what's the point? Why go to all the trouble to bring the flood if it didn't solve the problem of mankind's sin? What's the point? Why did God do that? Well, the flood was a graphic demonstration of what sin deserves. And it serves as a historical warning to all of us of the eventual certainty of final judgment. The Apostle Peter makes this point in 2 Peter chapter 3. He's talking about the certainty of Christ's second coming and the final judgment that will come with that. And the Apostle Peter says this in 2 Peter 3, 3, Above all, above all, you must understand that in the last days scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming? He promised. Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of the creation. But they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens came into being, and the earth was formed out of water and by water. These waters also, the world of that time, by these waters, the world also of that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word, The present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. The Apostle Peter is saying here that this same word of God that created the world in the beginning by the power of his word, the same word of God that brought the flood in judgment is also revealing that this present world is awaiting judgment to come. How do we know that final judgment is coming? Because the God who says it's coming is the same God who brought the flood to show his judgment on sin. And so the flood demonstrates what sin deserves. But secondly, the rainbow expresses God's gracious intent. God's gracious intent. After the flood... As we've already said, sin is going to increase upon the earth, right? Um, 
they didn't solve the sin problem by going on the boat. They took sin with them because they were sinners just like the rest of us. And so very quickly after getting off of the boat, um, sin will run rampant again through the human race until we read in chapter 11 about the Tower of Babel where mankind will finally try to build this city for themselves in order not to multiply and fill the earth in direct defiance to God's command. And they'll do this, it says, in an attempt to make a name for themselves which is a theme that we've seen before the flood as well. Rather than calling on the name of the Lord, it's all about them and their own self-reliance. The trajectory from the Garden of Eden to Babel moves from Adam and Eve's desire for autonomy, moral autonomy, the ability to make their own calls on what is right and wrong, their independence from God. It moves from that desire to a full-blown culture of godlessness that seeks absolute self-sufficiency. And God, of course, knows this is going to happen. And so he makes a covenant to let us know that despite our ongoing sin, he refuses to give up. Sin and judgment are only half the story of these chapters. Woven throughout all of it is God's incredible grace and patience. And here's another example. When God cursed the serpent for tempting Eve back in Genesis chapter 3, He gave us the first hint of the gospel. After cursing the serpent, God said in Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring, your seed, it says, and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. This hope is for a man, an offspring of the woman, a seed of the woman who would defeat sin and evil ultimately. As the Bible unfolds, it becomes clear that this hope is fulfilled in Jesus, the Son of God who comes to be this deliverer, who overcomes Satan to save his people while being wounded in the process. And so the covenant here with Noah, the rainbow, remind us of God's resolve to redeem in spite of our sin. They remind us that our sin cannot thwart the promise that God made in the garden to deliver a people. It's all about grace. God will protect the seed of the woman and he will carry forward his plan to redeem in spite of how extensive and how intensive the sin is in our world and in our lives. Noah and his family are saved so that they can become agents for the fulfillment of God's promise. You and I are saved for the same purpose, right? We are are reconciled in order to be agents of reconciliation to others. Technically, God's preservation of the world after the flood is an expression of what we call common grace. This is not saving grace. This is called common grace. Remember, what we deserve is death, But instead, God allows everyone to continue living for a time. Uh, He actively preserves our world. Common grace includes all of the undeserved blessings that everyone receives from God's hand, whether we recognize them as coming from God's hand or not. Rain and sun and prosperity and health and gifts and, 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 and abilities. And through his common grace, God is restraining the wickedness that could be happening in the world, and he is actively preserving our world. All of this is common grace. It's available to all living things. 
James tells us in James 1.17, every good and perfect gift, every one is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights who does not change like shifting shadows. Every good thing in your life is because God loves you. God is extending grace to you. You don't deserve it. And he does this to everyone, the, the righteous and the wicked alike. Common grace is not saving grace, but common grace serves saving grace because it preserves the world for salvation. It shows us God's love and kindness, and it gives us time to respond to God. And so that brings us to our, our final point. The time given us is an opportunity. The time given is an opportunity for us. The common grace that comes through God's covenant with every living creature on earth in Genesis 9 is unexpected and undeserved. It's a surprise gift of life when only death is deserved. Do not waste this opportunity. God is giving you an opportunity. Don't waste it. Romans 2.4 challenges us when it says, Do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? God doesn't bring judgment in order to give space for repentance, for reconciliation, to get right with God. Earlier, I read from 2 Peter 3 about the certainty of final judgment, and God tells us that, uh, he tells us about that, not to terrorize us, not to, to just threaten us with a stick, but to motivate us to avoid it. He goes on to say in the next verse, 2 Peter 3, verse 8, do not forget this one thing, dear friends, with the Lord is, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. God's ultimate, God takes no pleasure in expressing judgment on those who reject him. He's making an offer of grace. God is patient. He is forbearing because he wants to give us opportunity to be saved. And so as Christians, we long for Christ to return, to defeat all evil and to make everything right. But as long as history continues, people have an opportunity to be reconciled to God. So how should we respond with the time that we've been given? Well, first, if you're not a follower of Christ, and you're hearing me today, realize that trusting in Christ alone to make you right with God is the only way to avoid the wages of sin. Jesus offers to pay those wages for you in your place so that you don't have to. When I read that verse about the wages of sin earlier, I only read the first half of the verse. The whole verse says, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. God sent Jesus to be an atoning sacrifice that pays the penalty for our sins for all who would place their trust in him. There's nothing you have to do to earn it. 
All you have to do is admit you need it and to receive it by believing that Jesus is the Son of God and Savior of sinners and trust in Him alone as the one who can make you right with God. That's what He came to do. 2 Corinthians 5 explains that God was reconciling the world to Himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And that's possible because of verse 21. God made him, Jesus, who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Incredible. In other words, Jesus takes the penalty for our sin upon himself. And in exchange, he gives us his own righteousness as a gift, a legal standing before God that says, not guilty. If you recognize God's patience and kindness toward you, more than that, if you recognize his love and mercy toward you in sending his son to die so that you might live, you can become one of his followers today. In a moment, I'll offer a prayer of faith that simply expresses trust in Christ. And if that prayer expresses the desire of your heart to trust him to receive this free gift that he offers to you in Christ, You could pray that just as an expression of that trust, that faith in Christ, and be reconciled to him today. So if you don't yet know Christ, if you're not trusting in him, be reconciled to him. Do that even before the service is over. I'll give you a moment to do that later. Second, for those of us who are already followers of Christ, how should we respond to the time that we've been given? Well, 2 Peter continues, uh, verse 11 Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. Some brief thoughts. First, don't presume upon God's goodness toward you. It's easy to just go through life and take things for granted. Right? We might even find ourselves whining about not having the comforts that we really want. Uh, thank Him for the countless good things that He has brought into your life, starting with your daily breath. Right? Moment by moment, He is preserving the world so that you can continue See the hand of your creator and provider in the things that he has given you. Be thankful for this gracious God. Second, as Peter says here, live a godly life, right? Do you find yourself using the time that God has given you, that he's patient, providing space and time for his kingdom to come to more and more people? Do you find yourself using that time for worldly goals, for for your own pleasures that that are disconnected from the glory of God? Are you more concerned about being comfortable than about engaging in his mission in the world? Realize God has reconciled us to be agents of reconciliation. He blesses us so that through us, others can be blessed. He tells us in verse 12 to speed the coming of the final day. God is sovereign. So how do we speed the coming of that day? Well, he works through us, right? We participate with God in his redemptive purposes for the world by sharing the gospel with others, 
giving a reason for the hope that we have with gentleness and respect, by praying for the advance of his kingdom, by serving others in his name, to manifest his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven, by reflecting his character as we go about our lives, all of life, where we live, where we work, where we play, the way we go about our work, the way we raise our families, in short, by living a holy, godly, and missional life. That's what he calls us to. Every time you see a rainbow in the sky, it should remind you of God's patience so that more people might not perish but come to repentance, and it should prompt you to be about His kingdom purposes. Finally, be a people of hope. Verse 13 reminds us that we await a new heavens and a new earth where all things will be made right, where righteousness will live. No matter how dark this world gets, No matter what kind of suffering you may go through in this life, you know the end of the story. And be encouraged by Paul's words. He reminds us, for our light, by comparison to eternity, our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. How do we respond? We fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary but what is unseen is eternal. God preserves to redeem. Despite mankind's sin, God graciously preserved Noah and representative animals on the ark. He preserves the line of the seed of the woman. He gives humanity a fresh start. But despite this fresh start, God knew that our indwelling sin would make a mess of things again virtually immediately. And so he made a covenant to preserve life, to preserve the earth. He pours out his common grace on all people. And in so doing, he gives us time. He gives us opportunity to be reconciled to him, opportunity to live a holy and godly life, opportunity to be about the work of his kingdom for his glory and our joy. How will you make the most of the time that he has given you? We come to this time of renewal. We do this every week after the sermon. It's a time of confession, perhaps. Um, Consider that question. How will you make the most of the time that you have been given? And as I said before, perhaps you need to confess that you've not been making the most of the time for spiritual purposes. You've been using it in your own way, for your own purposes, apart from God's desires, and your life looks no different than the non-Christians around you. If that's the case for you, if that's the conviction that you feel from the Spirit, confess it. Recommit to a life of discipleship. Perhaps you've thought too lightly of your sin. Let the judgment that comes by flood remind you of what sin deserves. Confess your sin and thank God that he has spared you from that judgment through faith in Christ. Christ. 